Good morning, Grace Chapel. Yeah, it's so good to see you. You loving this weather? Isn't it great? Okay, whatever. Um, as, Mac, as October winds down, last day of October today, special thanks to all of you who showed your appreciation during Pastor's Appreciation Month. Some of you are like, what? That was October? Yeah, you missed it. Um, but you showed appreciation for your pastors. There were cards. There were letters. There were just amazing, encouraging, thoughtful words. It was, it was wonderful, and it was uplifting, and I encourage you to keep praying. As many of you said that you are praying for us, keep praying for us. And speaking of prayer, let us do that before we open up into the book of Judges and continue our journey through that amazing Old Testament book. God, Heavenly Father, author of our faith, our Savior, our Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity to open up your precious living word and to be challenged, to be changed, to be encouraged, all that you've already planned and ordained for us for this morning. And Lord, we pray for those who can't be here, for those who are sick, for those who are in the hospital. Lord, we pray for those, your, your children, that you would encourage them, that they would uh, sense you, that they would see you, that they would know you more intimately, that you would bring uh, where it's allowed, that you would bring flesh and blood into their rooms and into their lives to share uh, love that comes from you, to share encouragement and whatever is needed. And Lord, we have experienced this ourselves, and we thank you in advance because you, we know you are faithful and you will do this. And we pray it in Jesus Christ's most precious name. Amen. Speaking of encouragement, we're going through the book of Judges. <laughs> so the only, only people that laughed and smiled now are the people who are actually reading it for themselves. Um, last week, we watched a guy named Abimelech self-destruct. And you'd think that a ruler like that, that comes along into a nation, would provide the wake-up call that nation needed, right? No. Israel is sucked further down sin's predictable spiral that we have seen week after week, chapter after chapter. And today, we observe, uh, you and I, we get to observe our present world system that has been in existence thousands and thousands of years all over this planet, and we watch it spiral. And it's not spiraling up. Uh, it's spiraling into further confusion and frustrating chaos, and you and I are able, through the advancement of technology, to watch the decline of civilization as no other people have ever watched in the history of the world. You think that humans would learn from the past. But like Israel, all God's people said, it's, it's a two-letter word, it begins with an N and ends with an O. No. But we in this room who know Jesus Christ as our personal sa Savior, who have trusted in God's salvation through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, we have been left with these stories for a reason. We've been left with these stories in order to learn in our own life, in our church family life, never neglect God's rule. Never allow lesser gods 
lesser things to rule alongside of our holy God. He's a jealous God that way. He will not let that go unchecked. Okay, Judges chapter 10, that's where we are. So if you've got your Bibles, you want to turn there, I'll have most of the passages on the screen, but follow along. Judges chapter 10, and in the first 10 verses of Judges, we read, after Abimelech, the guy I talked about who self-destruct last week, there arose to save Israel Tola, and he judged Israel for 23 years, and then he died. And after him rose Jair, the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years, and then Jair died. So you get these two more judges, and they're basically just a footnote in the history of Israel, but it's interesting to note here that unlike all the other judges, whether major or minor prior to them, with these two judges, no outside enemy is mentioned. Did you notice that? By its absence. People often need a leader who will rescue them from themselves more than they need a leader to defend them from outside dangers from the failings and the ambitions of our own human hearts, from our divisions and our strife that so easily rise up among us, sometimes without any provocation at all, it seems. I'm always amazed, though, through all of this in reading Israel and looking at our world today and, and looking even at our church family, at the mercy of God. Aren't you? At the mercy and patience of God through all this. And it's a great reminder that sometimes the church's greatest problem is often the church. <laughs> it's not God. It's not even the outside enemies and influences that are around us. It's, it's ourselves. Verse 6, and the people of Israel, after all of this, again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Surprise! And they served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites the gods of the Philistines, and they forsook the Lord and did not serve Him. The Baals and the Ashtaroths were the gods of the native Canaanites who God told them to drive out hundreds of years before, and they didn't completely, and they allowed some of those idols from the Canaanites to remain, and they worshiped them, and that's how we've seen them fall. But these other gods that are mentioned here, this long list of, of Syria, Syria and Sidon and Ammon and Moab and the Philistines, these belong to people outside of Canaan. These are the nations that surround the land that God's given to Israel. And we saw God raise up, remember the judge Othniel against Syria and Sidon? And then Ehud against Moab and Ammon. And then Shamgar against the Philistines and Deborah against the Canaanites. In other words, every time Israel worshipped the idols of a nation, that nation ended up oppressing them over and over and over again. Idolatry always leads to enslavement. Always. Never an exception. It's interesting to notice that not only does idolatry lead to slavery, but slavery leads to more idolatry. You would think that once this, these foreign nations had oppressed and enslaved Israel, Israel would wake up, smell the coffee, and absolutely hate the gods of that nation, right? Like, let's not ever do that again. Have you ever been to a place in your life? Like, let's never do that again. Let's never go there. Let's never go down there. That's, that, that, was, that was bad. Let's not do it. 
promise me you'll never do that again. You've never said that to your kids, right? Never. Promise me you'll never do that again. Whoa. But these Ammonites that are oppressing Israel right in this passage we just read in chapter 10, verse 6, had already oppressed Israel way back in Judges chapter 3, verse 13. And here's Israel again serving the same gods, the Ammonite gods, leading to more enslavement by the nation of the Ammonites. And despite the pain and despite the misery and probably the warnings and the stories from their parents and their grandparents, don't do that, don't go down that road, Israel continues to worship the very same gods that had let them down repeatedly because they're false gods and always brought them trouble. And it's easy for you and I, it really is. We, we read the passages and we view the futility of this kind of enslavement and worship. And from our vantage point, it looks, oh, that's, that's obvious. I knew that was going to happen. And we may even shake our head. How many of you, as you've read through some of the passages of Judges, have sh- sh- shook your head? Please. Yeah. Like, maybe not physically, but inside you're going, it's idiots. What were they thinking? But if human hearts really changed, don't our hearts today still falsely mislead us? When any idol that you and I put our hope and our trust in, and it leads to slavery, and it will guarantee, it's so incredible as you read the stories that we often typically respond with, well, that didn't work out. I need more of that idol. Because as Elvis Presley sang, we're caught in a trap. I know, I just put that in some of your heads and you're just going to go, okay, I can't. that's for the rest of the day. We're caught in a trap. Can't hold back. If someone seeks their value and their purpose in life, let's say in a relationship, okay, none of us have ever done that, in a relationship, they sac- typically they'll sacrifice everything for that relationship, thinking that ultimate fulfillment will come through that person. How's that working out for you? It typically doesn't live up to expectations because we're all flawed human beings. So we think, what do we think when that doesn't work out? I need to find another relationship. Yeah, that's the ticket. I need someone who will be better to help me attain that kind of meaning that I'm looking for. I need another better person. I need another better idol to give me what I'm not feeling right here, right now. And, and I don't know about you, but we tend not to view our problems as being the result of worshiping idols. We typically blame somebody else. And we certainly don't view pursuing alternatives as worshiping that same idol even more. Whenever you and I set our affections on something other than God, we're always trapped. Always. Because other idols can't ever fully satisfy us. Verse 7, So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, 
and he sold them into the hand of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites, and they crushed and they oppressed the people of Israel that year. And for 18 years, they oppressed all the people of Israel so that Israel was severely distressed. Sold is the Hebrew word. Sold them into the hands of their enemies. That's a strong phrase. We, we saw it used back in Judges chapter 2 and Judges chapter 3 and in Judges chapter 4. You know, how many of you have ever sold a car, used car? When you sold that car to another person, it means that that new owner can do with it whatever they please, right? Because it's what? It's no longer your car. They can trash it. They can restore it if you trashed it. They can sell it and make a profit. Hey, isn't that our old car? What, what happened? But when you look back in Judges at how God sold Israel before into the hands of other nations, we know from reading those passages that that does not mean He abandoned them. It doesn't mean that He nullified all the promises He made to Abraham and then reconfirmed through Moses and then Joshua. It does mean that God stopped protecting them. He let the things they had already sold themselves to instead of Him. He let those things they had showed affection for over love for God actually begin to dominate and to own them. Romans chapter 1, verses 23 through 25 is a fascinating parallel passage to Judges chapter 10 and actually to quite a few chapters of Judges. And Paul talks about this very thing called idolatry. And he speaks of people who, in verse 23 of Romans 1, exchanged the glory of God for images made to look like mortal men and birds and animals and reptiles. What was the result? Verse 24, therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts. You see, it's not really about the idol. That's what we always get all excited about. It's about your heart. The idol's not the problem. Our hearts are the problem. And the word lust that Paul uses here means an overwhelming desire, an enslaving, uncontrollable desire. You'll be caught in a trap. And the phrase that he uses, give them up, means that God allows things, things in which you and I hope for, long for, instead of God, to become ruling powers in our lives, and they do every time. And once God gave them over to worshiping idols, whatever they were, verse 25, they worshiped and served created things rather than the Creator. And we look at this and we go, that's nuts. Have you looked around our world lately? What are people worshiping? I'm not thinking it's God. And this spiral is a principle of life. The judgment for idolatry, ironically, is idolatry. <laughs> More of it. You're trapped, and you can't go back. So what do you do when you're trapped? When you are trapped and you want out, what do you do? Judges chapter 10, verse 10. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God, and we've served the Baals. 
Here it is, cycle, cycle, cycle. Every chapter of Judges, the familiar, depressing cycle begins once more. But, oh, okay, in, in, in chapter 10, verse 10 that I just read, it says that the people do cry out. But have you noticed so far in Judges, and as well as in our own lives today, people tend to only cry out to God when? This is a point where we can have some interaction. People tend to cry out to God when? When they're in despair. When they're desperate. Crisis. When things are really bad. <laughs> That's when people tend to cry out to God. And I'm not saying that God doesn't use those times. I'm saying, what's up with that? That's when we cry out to God. Verse 11, and here's God's answer to the cry. This is, this is surprising. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, let's have a pop quiz. Okay, class, let's review. Did I not save you from the Egyptians? And all the Israelites said, yes. Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites and the Ammonites and from the Philistines? Yes, yes, yes. Verse 12, the Sid okay, while we're on it, how about the Sidonians and the Amalekites and the Manoites oppressed you? And you cried out to me. Yes, we did. And what did I do? I saved you out of their hand every time. Verse 13, yet you have forsaken me after all of this, and you all know it, after all of this, you've forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. God can't say that. Well, he just did. Go cry. I love, I love this. This is, like, this is like hearing my mom. You know, go cry out to the gods, the other gods. Okay, you go do what you want. See where that gets you. Go cry out to the other gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in your time of distress. Idolatry always leads to enslavement. So God says to the person who's worshiping money, oh, so you want to live for money. And you want to do that instead of me. You're going to put money ahead of me. Then money will rule your life. It will control your heart. It will control your time. It will control your emotions. It'll even control who you vote for. So God says to the person who lives for popularity and self-esteem, if you want to live for popularity and acceptance instead of me, then the fickleness of popular acclaim, then the fretting over not getting enough Facebook likes, that will rule you. That will control you. If you want another God besides me, go ahead. Let's see how merciful that God will be to you when times get tough. Let's see how effective it will be in saving you, in guiding you, and giving you real-world wisdom that actually works. And so in a crushing line, God tells them in verse 13, I will save you no more. He will not answer them. They should go cry to the gods that they've been worshiping. God always sees through our prayers, right down to the heart of our motives. Verse 14, go and cry out to the gods you have chosen. He means that this particular cry God sees through. 
This particular request of theirs is simply the request of a weaker person to a stronger one. And it's just to alleviate misery. You need a favor, so you're going to call a friend. It's like the Allies in World War II currying the favor of Russia. Remember that history? They didn't believe in Russia. (laughs) They didn't trust Russia. They just needed Russia at that moment to help them out of a mess. Actually created a bigger mess. Israel's like, okay, God, you have us over the barrel. Okay, we get it. We're in trouble because we broke your rules. We get it. Now, will you just please help us? (laughs) Will you get us out of this trouble? But you see, true repentance is a heartfelt conviction. It's a sincere hatred for what you have just done and where you're headed, regardless of whether it causes trouble or not. Repentance sees the offense as being against a holy God. In other words, we're sorry for the consequences of my sin, but I'm not really sorry for the sin. Not really. It's possible to turn from idolatry in an idolatrous way. And that's what they're doing. They're trusting that God will save them. But they're treating God as if He were just another one of their idols. A stronger one, yes, but just one of many affections that they have. They're trying to push the right buttons, make the right sacrifices, do the required rituals, say the right prayers in order to to get God to fix it. Have you ever been there? It's like wearing a good luck charm. It's like hanging a good luck charm on your rearview mirror. (laughs) I've seen this. As if it's going to give you some kind of safety while you drive. It's like coming to church, not so much to worship God because He deserves it, because you want a blessing. But notice that God calls them out. Notice when He peels back their true motives for crying out to Him, their reasons for coming to church. Verse 14, go and cry to the gods you have chosen that you run with during the week. Don't come here on Sunday. And the Israelites appear to get his point. Their new follow-up request is in verse 15, and it's very different from the one we got in verse 10. God, we have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. (laughs) We humans always tack that on. We just just have to because it's real. Verse 16, so they put away the foreign gods from among them, and they served the Lord, and he became impatient over the misery of Israel. He's going to do something about it. Do with us as you wish. Though we still beg for a little mercy, repentance, when it's the real deal, comes with a heart change. Before they were focused on their their physical loss of comfort, America, are you listening? They were dismayed at their nation's loss of freedom and self-rule. They were saying, God, this country is broken. Please fix it. But now, 
they're willing to admit that God is under no obligation at all to fix them and to take away their trouble that they put themselves into. What they're saying here is we want you. Even if it means that we're still going to keep on suffering, although we'd rather not, when we say to God, I want you because I want you to give me X, we expose that X is the real God in our life. When we say, I want you regardless of whether you give me X, X, Y, or Z, we expose that we are acknowledging the true God is our God. And then when verse 16, it says, they put away the foreign gods, they showed that they were going beneath the surface of behavior to change their heart's desire, not just the surface behavior. They were going down to the real true motives of what drove them to worship those other gods. And the book of Judges shows us that the Israelites often changed their behavior. They did this, but they often did it in order to curry the favor of the Lord. And there were always some Israelites, as you read through the passages, you'll see that there are are Israelites, even when they went through this, who kept the idols. They never destroyed them all in their own houses. Like they they hid them in closets, and they brought them out in times of, of danger. It was like some sort of insurance policy. True repentance does not just focus on our behavior, but on the motives and the beliefs that are behind that behavior. So then the Ammonites and the Israelite war camps are drawn up for battle, and the men of Gilead, that's probably the tribes of Gad and Reuben and and part of the tribe of Manasseh, they're searching for a guy. They want this guy who will lead them into this battle and beyond and be their judge. And the scene is set for another one of God's great deliverers, and he's a surprising choice. Chapter 11, verse 1, Jephthah. He's a mighty warrior, we read. And we read he's somewhat similar to a, a Gideon's son, Abimelech, who self-destructed uh, last week, in that his mother was a prostitute. You know, in our world's eyes, Leaders are people who have an Ivy League education. They went to the best school. Or they're from some elite pedigree. You know, we, we, we want those people as our leaders. They have, they have this strong family background, background which supposedly guarantees that they have good emotional health. <laughs> don't believe it. And definitely we don't want people who have a police record. Do we? Jephthah is someone without any of these things, except he has the police record. He's the illegitimate son of a prostitute who was driven out of his home at a young age by his half-brothers, a deeply dysfunctional family. And he leads, we read, a band of outlaws. Jephthah is in organized crime. He robs people for a living. He's, He's an underworld boss a complete outcast, a total criminal from a very broken home. That's your leader. And God raises him up to be the next broken Savior of Israel. The short of this this episode during one of Israel's 
darkest judge days is that Jephthah is an extremely shrewd negotiator as well as being a great fighter. And he first seeks peaceful resolution, but in 1128, the king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Diplomacy is exhausted. War is inevitable. And in Judges 1129, we read, then the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jephthah. Awesome. And from this point onward, you and I, the reader, we've seen this over and over again. We know the outcome is guaranteed, right? It's certain. We, the reader, get it, but Jephthah doesn't. His inner flaws rise to the surface as he advances to meet the enemy. And in verse, 20, in verse 30 of chapter 11, he made a vow to the Lord. If God grants, grants him the victory, which we already know and Jephthah should have known is guaranteed, if God grants him the victory, this is his vow, he will sacrifice to God the first thing that leaves his house when he returns home from a victorious campaign. And all God's people said, what are you thinking? In verses 32 through 40, then it says, Jephthah went out to fight, and he has the Spirit of the Lord, and the Lord gives him total victory. Duh. We knew this was coming. So he returns to his home in Mizpah, the victorious judge of Israel, and now what should follow is what we've read in most of the other judges, one verse about how long he ruled, that there was peace in the land, and then he died. But we don't read that. The first thing out of the door is his daughter who happens to be his only child. He's distraught. He actually half blames his daughter. Why did you run out of the house? <laughs> and he bemoans the reality, as he puts it, I have made a vow to the Lord that I cannot break. His daughter remarkably insists that he keep his word. And after two months, where she mourns the life the love, and the children that she will never have. It says, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed. This is a terrible story. In what is an increasingly terrible section of Israel's history. Why would he promise that? Deuteronomy 12.31 is quite clear that human sacrifice is detestable and something that the Lord hates. God does hate things, and this is one of them. There's no doubt about God's will in this matter. We don't have to pray about it. So why does he make this vow? I'd like to suggest, first of all, he has a desensitized worldview. I read this from a commentator a number of weeks ago, and I think he nails it. This is right on. A desensitized worldview. Jephthah has already exhibited, if you read the story, that he is a deeply desensitized view of humanity and it's being, has been influenced by the atrocious cruelty of the pagan cultures around him. You know, we believers, we can profess faith in God and yet still hold on to some of the misleading truths of the society that we live in. 
We're often tempted to let the world squeeze us into its mold. That's why Paul in the New Testament wrote Romans chapter 12, and he also wrote Ephesians chapter 4 to counter that temptation we are all under every day. And Jephthah let that false, violent worldview live alongside his other true beliefs about God. You should read, you get a chance, read it. The things he says about Yahweh as he's talking to the people and as he's talking to God, they are right on. But then he does this. And today we're more likely to let worldly attitudes about sex, about money, come in and live alongside of the other truth beliefs we have in our lives that are founded firmly on the living Word of God. Paul says in Romans 12, too, that I just referred to, don't be conformed to this world. It's going gonna, it's gonna to try to happen. You're going to be tempted. Don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the right thing to do, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. And second, Jephthah has this false idea of works and righteousness. He has this false understanding of God's character as it relates to what you're supposed to do, what you have to do, how are you to be righteous before God. God is holy. All God's people said? Yes, He's holy. He is totally other than any other God or any other thing. Jephthah has not only been infected by the prevailing pagan morals and the moral codes of his day, but also by this pagan works righteousness understanding of God's character, human sacrifice was how you could buy off a pagan god. It's mentioned all through the Old Testament. Israel at times even practiced it as part of their religious rituals. A pagan worshiper would offer a human sacrifice, and it was usually your firstborn. So all of you firstborn, keep your head down. But you would do that horrid act and tell the God you are offering your firstborn to that look how impressed and awed I am by your supernatural power. In return, would you bless me? And if it was a priest offering it on behalf of an army or a nation, it would be, and give us the victory or give us rain for the crops, whatever it is. But the God of the Bible wants only one kind of human sacrifice the self-sacrifice of offering God the lordship of our lives daily on His altar. And even that is not offered to secure His favor. It's not why we do it. We don't offer our lives to God each and every day to get something from God, but we do it in response to who He is and what He's already done for us. Romans 12.1, the verse before the other one I just read in verse 2, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the, by the mercies of God. 
in view of the mercies of God, not to gain, not to buy the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship because of the mercies of God. Jephthah was a shrewd warlord. He's hedging his bets. Lack of trust? Probably. He thought God needed to be bought through some sort of sacrificial gift because that's what you do in this culture. Everybody's doing it. The real tragedy is that God had already decided to save His people and use Jephthah to be that Savior. He didn't need any of this other trash He was bringing in from the world. So why keep the vow? Why not realize your mistake and go, okay, that was dumb. Lord, please forgive me. I don't know what I was thinking. Well, most likely, it's the same reason He made it in the first place. He has no concept of God's grace. He sees Yahweh like he sees all the other pagan gods, a powerful being, maybe even the most powerful of all the beings, but whose favor you can earn. It's similar to the prosperity gospel and all those preachers who are all over the place in our country today telling us you can do this to get this from God. It's the same concept. It's the world. It's not the Bible. And when he realizes his rash vow has trapped him, he can't break it and he can't save his daughter because he's conditionally trusted God. So now he's trapped by that conditional trust of God. His pagan-influenced worldview of God would believe that that kind of a God would strike him dead if he broke this vow. No mercy. And there are two lessons I'd like us to end with today. First one, might it be that you and I are more infected by our culture than by our Bible? Nobody's taken? Nobody's... I certain, certainly believe that we are far more affected by our culture than we think or that we'll admit. We can see how Jephthah ignored the clear instruction of Scripture which told him about who God is and how sacred human life is. He had the first five books of the Bible, the same books that form much of our present Christianity's worldview of the character of God and the sanctity of human life. He had those. And instead, he listened to the pagan culture about who God is and how this life works. You do this, God does that. But wouldn't people today, most people in our world today, who live under oppressive governments, who live in less desirable places than the United States of America, wouldn't they be astounded at how many Christians in free prosperous Western civilizations have absorbed their surrounding culture to live alongside of their Christian faith? Jephthah should cause each of us to look at our own lives, not someone else's, and ask, what enormous blind spots do I have today?
God, show me, as David prayed, and then cleanse my heart when I repent of it. If we really want to know the answers to those questions, we will become humble Bible studiers, Bible readers, and doers of the Word of God. Second lesson, God's people still struggle to believe in a God of grace. In the Garden of Eden, the first lie of the serpent was to make humans disbelieve that God had their best interests in mind. Did God really say that? Isn't God keeping you from something, some more fun? And since then, humans have always felt the need to control God or to pay God or to somehow, some way deserve God. We don't. That we cannot simply trust God to love and to bless us because of who He actually is. One writer put it this way, it is worth asking, in what ways would I live differently, more radically or restfully, if I really believed God was completely committed to me? And I added, his own blood-bought child and work out what is best for me. Would you rise with me? And we're going to praise and worship that awesome God, our Savior, who on the cross through Jesus Christ covered our sins, eradicated them, washed them away, and that by belief, by faith, by trust in that reality, we are the children of God. Heavenly Father, we bow before you, preparing our hearts and our minds to praise you and you alone, our only God, the only God. There are no others. Lord, may we live the rest of this day in light of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.